0: Welcome to the Commercial Disco, the only show dedicated to exploring the great stories and people driving Australia's unique innovation and tech landscape. Now, over to your host, James Riley. James Riley here
1: from Welcome to the Commercial Disco. Um, I'm talking today with Daniel Petrie, a co founder and partner at Petrie Ventures. Welcome, Daniel. Thanks, James. Um, I'm going to call this one an election special. Okay, uh, I'm, I'm the editor, so I get to call it what I want. But look, I think in all seriousness, we're going to be talking a lot about uh, government policy here. So uh, why not call it an election special, given we have an election coming up? Daniel, you probably don't need a lot of introduction to uh, people who are going to be listening to this, but very quickly, I remember like I first came across you; you were managing director at uh, at Microsoft in
2: Australia. You realize that ages you as well. Isn't it, ages, <laughs> it, well
1: it ages me a lot. You've had many careers since then, including in Redmond, with yeah. uh, with Microsoft as Vice President, and then uh, Founding Chair of eCorp, Executive Chair of Netus, Founding Chair of Nine MSN, Board Member at PBL, to uh, to name a few positions. You're still a current Board Member at Sydney Theatre Company, yeah. which must be been very interesting yeah, in recent days. And you're a Board Member of Innovation and Science Australia. I was. Okay, you were, until November last yes. year, according to your LinkedIn. So... That's where I wanted to start. What was that like as an experience?
2: I was honoured to be invited by Bill Ferris, um, who I think is one of the fathers of innovation in Australia, actually, so the work that he's done through private equity, but also through the government and through uh, biotech uh, investing and in innovation, to join the board, and particularly with people such as um, Paul Bassett and Scott Farquhar and Molly Carnegie. So yeah. I had a sort of cohort of people that I knew and respected, and then other great people like Bronte Adams and so it was, it was, I think the the going in was fantastic. And I think given the remit was great, yep. come up with Australia's sort of innovation strategy for 2030, a humbling remit to be given. I think the work we did was good. I think the report- Over, over a two-year period? So that was kind of
1: early early 2016? Yes, you
2: know, yeah. So, yeah. So, yeah, so, so two to three-year period, uh, yep. two and a bit years into the report was released, two and a half years. And I think the report nailed a lot of the- Areas of improvement required, R&D, training, etc., cetera, emissions, what have you. I think probably my experience was somewhat um, saddened by uh, we had five ministers, five or six ministers in three years. I think it was six ministers in three years. It was think- a revolving door of ministers. No one wanted to stay there very long. The government, the, the current federal government, clearly doesn't see innovation as an important area of work or Effort or thought, yeah, and that was playing out in the way the wonderful people in the department were being sort of not spoken to or not included in conversations or strategy, yeah. and the way the ministers have applied that to their job. And I think that the you know the, the last minister they have now, Karen Andrews, who's in the outer cabinet, so in the industry's moved from the inner to the outer cabinet, which is an indication in itself of the government's priorities and just the approach of nothing going on. Yeah. N- none of the recommendations have been p- picked up and actually gone with other than arguably one of the minor recommendations was a mission around the Great Barrier Reef and that's that sort of went thermonuclear with yeah, yeah, the right. amount of money poured into <laughs> that.
1: Can I, I, I'm going I'm to circle back to that 2030 report, but just on the, the kind of issue of priority, like we have yeah. seen even the, the term innovation kind of disappear, don't yeah. right? talk about startups yeah. as much. Politicians don't yeah. like coming to start events and rubbing shoulders. Yeah. Is that, like, is, is it a, I mean, do, do you genuinely believe that our representatives don't see this as important? Yes. Or they don't see it as a vote winner? Both.
2: Okay. I think, I think you know, and then you, you have to come at this, you'll you come at this from a particular sort of set of data, right? And I think the, the perspective I would give to this is that it's quite clear that technology is disrupting. Every job in every industry in every country. And that's an increasingly impressive sort of curve of innovation of adoption. So with every day, there's more things going on that the technology involved with. You can't get away from it. Now, the core of, of innovation is technology. The core of technology is R&D. And what we see around the world is. Every other OECD country, whether it's the US or China or Britain or France or the EU as a group, pouring money into R and D and artificial intelligence and machine learning, realizing that these technologies are disrupting their industries and their countries. At the same time, Australian politicians say we're not going to talk about innovation because it doesn't resonate with the man in the street. Yeah. Uh, So rather than saying, "Hey," We need to help people understand that this is going to fundamentally change Australia's society. They prefer to pull back and have the easy conversation, which yeah. is about things that aren't that important or that long-term. Okay, yeah. And, and look, and, and I guess it is disappointing, but
1: to, all right, the 2030 report. Yes. We, uh, there was plenty of work went into that over, yes. over a considerable period and it has sunk without a trace, would probably be a, a harsh way to put it. Harsh fair. But yeah, it's, it's yeah. certainly kind of disappeared. But even the government response
2: to its recommendations were, were tepid. Well, um, well, I would argue not any tepid. They were, you know, I wouldn't say fraudulent. But, you know, when we talked about in the report looking at the mix of R&D spend between indirect and direct, yeah. and there is an argument that globally there is more done in a direct sense than indirect sense. And so we, you can argue the toss. And so one of the recommendations was to pull some out of direct and move to indirect. Well, what happened? was pulled out of direct and put in general surplus, yeah. $2.6 billion. Yeah. Now, th- and remember, this comes out of a country that's R&D spend is low anyway.
1: Yeah.
2: And that, so that was just appalling. Yeah. You know, the recommendation says take it out of direct, move it, into, uh, move it out of indirect, sorry, to direct. What they did was take it away <laughs> and not backfill it. And then again, the same thing kind of happened again this time around, where the underspend in the programs was basically banked as savings going forward, right? So another right. another one
1: point four. Yeah, the in, indirect versus direct was uh, that that was uh, the budget got fleeced, and, it and did. It, it, it's kind of extraordinary that that didn't cause a bigger kind of fuss, even at the well, time.
2: Look, at one of the see one of the problems is if you look at as if you look at R and D spend as the sort of canary in the coal mine or the proxy of innovation, Australian R and D spend generally business spe- expenditure R&D, yeah. is low. Yeah. Um, it is very low on an OECD basis. If you pull out mining hardware R&D, it is ridiculously low. So we're not coming from a high base. And a lot of that is a function of a number of our industries, our oligopolies, where there is no incentive to innovate, really innovate. Now, I, I did a paper a while ago. I compared the R&D expenditure as a percentage of revenue of leading US companies with Australian companies. Now, I wasn't comparing, you know, Google's and Microsoft's. I was comparing Walmart or J&J or Procter & Gamble with a Woolworths or a Coles, so kind of non-tech companies, although you could argue everything's tech. And what you saw was, on average, these US companies are spending, you know, 5%, 6 7 8% of revenue on R&D, and the Australian equivalents are spending 1%. Yeah. So inherent in the Australian culture, is a lack of understanding of the need to invest for over-the-horizon products, which is R&D. It just doesn't exist other than medtech, a bit of pharma. It's just not a concept concept that exists in many boardrooms or CEOs. So really, you have a government that doesn't care about it and a business sector that doesn't really get it either, and yet we know the future will be built on on what we do with R&D. So it is unfortunate.
1: Do you think like uh, we are at a special moment in time with, with this kind of stuff. I mean, I say that because certainly through the Howard era, we, we kind of wore it on our sleeve that, that we were tech followers. We were adopters. We weren't right. advances. We we're adopters. But now it's,
2: it seems different. We need to be kind of playing this game. Well, it, it, it depends on what you want to think about standard of living fundamentally. And, and do you want enough wealth in the country that you then, whoever the government of the day is gets to decide how they split it up, whether they make give more to low income or not, but at least you have the wealth to split, you have a choice. If the wealth of the nation receives, well, there is no discussion about where it goes. And I think this is a point in time when if we don't become more producers of underlying technology solutions, and this could be in, in health services, not right. just in the way we think about software companies, but if we're not doing more of that and therefore creating export economies based on these products, we're just going to be a follower and an adopter. And we will then have an economy that reflects that, which is not high incomes, not a lot of wealth created locally and a lower standard of living.
0: Okay. One more thing on the
1: uh, 2030 report, the moonshot, healthiest nation on earth. I kind of follow this stuff, but I've found it hard to to track this one. There is progress being made in that area, but they're doing it by stealth.
0: Yeah.
2: Well, so so I think that the, the back story there was If you look at Australia, basically, Australia and the UK, a couple of other countries have got these national health systems, which have national databases of every visit to a doctor, national databases of every drug that's been prescribed to you. And Australia's research in health is world class. Our researchers are world class and really punch above their weight. So there is an argument that we could take that wealth of expertise and data and create health services. That could both create a healthier nation, but also create services we could export, whether they're diagnosis or therapy. That's the sort of the backstory. And not a lot of countries can pull that off. The US would find it difficult because it doesn't have a national data set. UK can with the NHS. So this is an example where Australia had a unnatural advantage we could use yeah. both to help us produce better outcomes for Australians and create export income. And yes, there's been some. MRFF, the Medical Research Future Fund, has had some money and there's been some investments in genomics. But there hasn't been this wholesale a focus on a vision for a healthier nation and a nation where we're building more health services for export.
1: There certainly hasn't been a campaign to communicate
2: this no, to the no, broader public. No. And is
1: that a, I mean, without getting too deep into it, but my health record sort of punched a big hole in, in
2: the whole database. Thing. Well, that, that was, I think, a, a really good example of a very poorly constructed debate. I find it a little bit hilarious that people were up in arms about the potential of My Health Record being hacked and therefore didn't want their health data held online. But they're happy as pigs in mud have all their bank data sitting online and all their shopping data sitting online. And so it, be- it became a hysterical debate, and yet the reality of that debate is, firstly, there haven't been the breaches that would exist. There's the same level of security on that data as there is other government data sets. But more importantly, the the real important issue is a lot of the great breakthroughs in health will come because you'll be able to take large data sets of the population and their health and start to look for insights about diagnosis and and treatment. And so the more data you have, the quicker you'll get insights and you'll get therapies and outcomes. So the interesting debate there is, James, if you said, I don't want to put my health record into that, that's my choice, I'm not going going to, I'm going to pull out. If I said to you, okay, Joan, that's fine, but if uh, Mary over here finds a cure to a particular cancer because she's been able to pass yeah. the My Health Record data set and you get that cancer, I'm sorry, you can't have that cure, you didn't help out. Now, of course, that would be outrageous, right? But that's effectively what's happening. And no one ever presented the debate in that sense. They sort of all ran for the hills yeah. and did the whole privacy, it'll be disrupted. Now, now the, so the other part of that that I think was lost, in the U.S., They did one very good thing around the genomics when people had their genome sequenced. And rather than just pursue the privacy aspect, which is important, they pursued the use aspect. So in the US, in the the anti-discrimination laws, you can't discriminate on someone on the base of the genome. So that's what we need in Australia. So yes, we should try the privacy, but moreover, say, if I happen to hack my health record and I know that you've got a condition, I can't use that data to in any way discriminate against you in terms of jobs or loans or whatever you. And nothing's been done in that sense in Australia. Yeah, okay. That goes to the level of the discussion, I think, in tech generally. Is,
1: look, a couple of things. The encryption legislation kind of blindsided the industry somewhat. It was a kind of a long time coming. The social media legislation definitely blindsided the industry. Yeah. But this that kind of, I don't know whether it's a fundamental lack of respect or a fundamental lack of interest, but whatever it is, among parliamentarians... Big tech, at least, is on
2: the nose. Yes. And, uh, and that's having an impact on everyone else. Yeah, look, I think that those two pieces of legislation, and equally I think the ACCC's document on um, advertising and the Google-Facebook yes. thing, all three, I think, lack maturity of thought and approach. The encryption one and the social media bill were just rushed. Of course we should have encryption and, of course, we should stop social media platforms Propagating hate speech or violent videos. I mean, there's not a person standing who would, who would disagree with those two statements. But how you do that in a way that doesn't create unintended consequences is the issue. And the fact that neither of those bills went to parliamentary committees, neither of those bills were at least, you didn't at least get feedback from people that understand this stuff. You just rushed it through shows. I think it was just done for political purposes. Uh, It wasn't done for any sense, any sense of really doing the right thing by the population as a whole. So that's unfortunate.
1: Okay, so we've got an election coming up. How does the industry organise itself better to communicate its messages? And I'm talking about the Australian
2: industry. Sure, and that's yeah, that's a really good point. Yeah, is it? We don't, we can't all speak with one voice. I personally think that Facebook should probably be broken up, and that Instagram and WhatsApp should probably be taken out of Facebook. I probably think that YouTube should come out of Google. Now, I'm sure my friends at Google, who I've got some, yeah. would disagree with that view. So I don't think we can all talk with one voice. Um, I think the Australian industry does need to have a, a, a louder voice. The problem is we don't have that many large companies who have the time and resources to engage in in policy debate. Yep. Atlassian does. Yep. Um, we don't have many Atlassians. Yeah, we need more Atlassians. We need more Atlassians. So we need more Scott, Scott Farquhar, absolutely.
1: There's much freaking ground. Okay, so, yeah, 2000, late 2015, NISA, uh, so by my calculation, we go back to those six industry ministers, Ian McFarlane, Christopher Pyne, Greg Hunt, Arthur Sinodinos, um, Kayleigh, Cash, Karen Andrews, and it's most likely that we'll have another industry yes. minister after, yes. after the May election, or it's possible anyway. So I was going to ask you where the right spots are. First, I'm just going to put it out, we're, we're coming to the end. What do you want? What's your wish, wish list? What, what do you
2: want? Uh, look, I, I, think, I, I think, I think first we need to, we don't we need to accept whether we like it or not, technology will impact industries and jobs and society. We need to then say, okay, if that's the case, how do we create a healthier, more stable standard of living for most Australians? How do we do that? And so I think that we need to be, do a better job with startups. You know, startups was the engine room of, of employment growth in Australia. It wasn't the corporate sector. And the data shows that quite clearly. So we need to do a better job of supporting startups as they grow. And we're seeing that now. A bright spot is that a bunch of startups that us and SquarePeg and Blackbird and others invested in three or four years ago are now multi hundred million dollar companies. So this is working. We're creating lots of jobs yeah. and national wealth and people who can do the right thing by their fellow Australians. So that's fantastic. So don't fuck that up. And I think so. The R and D tax system needs to be addressed. The second thing we need to do is we need to understand that we need, need more skilled immigration. Yes, it'd be lovely to have a kindergarten and doing some programming, but if we've got companies in our economy that need to hire data scientists tomorrow and there aren't any, we can't wait five years or ten years or fifteen years. So allowing us to bring in not us companies to bring in individuals who can create massive leverage by training people in world class attributes is what we need. And right now we have this sort of broken system for skilled immigration. So that the ask would be skilled immigration and treatment of, of startups better and a general. Education population that research and development is the holy grail. We need to build a yeah. country built on R and D and be proud of our researchers, but be they in medical or in science or wherever.
1: So just, I'll, I'll take this, well, skill my, mig- all three of those actually. I was going to say skill migration, but for those changes going to be coming up to a year ago. So
2: it's a year since you've been able to get like the yeah, skills that how, are Do you know how many, like, G- how many global, how many, how many GTS species have been granted? I think, so, I think it's you can count with one hand
1: exactly or two hands is exactly right? one hand. So turning a startup into a scaler, like
2: we we yeah. don't actually know how to do that a mass way. Yes, yeah. we have to import some of those skills. So we how do, do you do it? Well, I think I think the good news is we are growing lots of companies. We've got forty three companies in our portfolio. A number of those are larger now multi hundred people companies. They're learning to scale by bringing talent in. So it's it's working. It can work better across a broader economy by allowing there to be more skilled immigration to come in at, you know, data science levels or bioethicist levels, that would be super useful. And allowing the startups who are putting their houses on the line to get a bit of relief in in R&D would help. But I think then there's enough going on. I think there is enough going on now. People are raising money, they're investing. I think the other things are working well. The problem is what's going on well isn't being talked about in the broader population. The benefits of what the startups are bringing is not being seen. The, The hundreds of people, the thousands of people being employed in high-paying jobs, who are employing more people in high-paying jobs, you don't you don't hear that being discussed by the prime minister ever. Well, that's right. And I I would have thought leadership comes from the top. The prime minister is our yeah. leader.
1: And until the prime minister is talking about these actually at a granular level. well,
2: absolutely if if Xi Jinping from um China yeah can get up and talk about China's twenty thirty plan and invest, I think it's something like thirty or forty billion dollars in it. If Macron can stand up and talk about investing billions of dollars in in AI and R&D, I'm pretty sure our Prime Minister could just once in a while reference something to do with technology and R&D. Yeah. I don't, I don't know. There is an election campaign,
1: so they have plenty of opportunity, <laughs> yeah. but I'm not sure that we're going to
2: no, do it. Not, what, not, we'll, not we'll, from with, these two leaders. No. I think that the only hope is that once the election's over, we can now then have a properly constructed, informed debate about the future of our country, what actually will move the dial for standard of living and what won't. Okay, look, I want to finish on a bright note and uh, <laughs> because we've
1: been punching away a little bit, you did mention the capital raisings. Where are the bright spots in
2: our industry? Like we have progressed, oh, there's no, no doubt. There's no it. question. I mean, I think, you know, Atlassian's a bright spot, but also you have to look at people like Canberra, what Melanie and done is extraordinary. I mean, and Safety Culture and Culture ramp and Prosper. And there's, there are probably, 50 to 80 companies which are worth more than 50 million dollars that didn't exist five six years ago and are all growing fast hiring people exporting software and services to the world so there's a lot of there's a lot of very good stuff going on. all right Daniel thank you, thank you thanks very much everyone. thanks jane thank you
0: we hope you enjoyed this episode of the commercial disco Please like, subscribe and leave a five-star review wherever you heard us. And head on over to our website, innovationoz.com, to check out our latest news and reviews focused on tech, innovation and policy. And reach out on our social media to ask any questions or be a guest on the show. Until the next time, this is the Commercial Disco, wishing you a great week ahead. We'll